Welcome back to Cinemaholics. This is a very special bonus conversation, and I'm so excited to have with me here to talk about two films that have been on my radar for a while, and couldn't think of somebody better to bring on to talk about both films, and that is, of course, Brandon Katz. Brandon, how are you doing? I'm doing good, John. How are you doing? Uh, can't complain, uh, because I always love doing these bonuses and giving some special time to some films that I think deserve a lot of conversation, if you can agree. I absolutely do, and uh, I'm very happy to give a little hype to two films that maybe not be on everybody's radar right now. Yes, but they're about to be. So, uh, Brandon, for people who uh, are not aware of your work yet, uh, what, what do you do these days, and uh, where can people find what you're up to? I'm the full-time entertainment reporter for the New York Observer. You can catch the work at Observer.com. You can follow me on Twitter at great underscore Catsby. Talking about movies and TV shows 24-7. I have no other interests or passions in my life. So uh, if you need some of that in your life, I got you. I'm, I'm the oh man. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my word. I, I, I hope that's not true. I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> you've got to be like darning socks or something on the side. Uh, but yes, uh, that that is great to hear. We, we of course, have you on to uh, hopefully do some great observing uh, for uh, not just these films, but maybe some quick Oscar conversation and a couple of topics uh, unique to you, of course. And uh, it's been a while since we had you on. I think the last time was probably, oh, we of course included you in our top 10 films of 2018. Uh, your list was one of my favorites. And uh, But I don't think we've actually had you on here to talk with us since uh, Deadpool 2, I want to say. That means I got to bring my A-game, make sure I get the invite back. Well, what can I, yeah, we're pretty strict over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Cinemolics, but uh, like I said before, we're going to be talking about two films. One of them I have not seen. And one that I have. So we're going to start with what I haven't. Um, start with the good stuff. So you don't have to hear my opinion. And that is a film that has been on my radar. I unfortunately wasn't able to catch it. Uh, it did. It actually only screened in San Francisco once or twice. And I couldn't make either screening. But that film is Waves. And I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. It's written and directed by Trey Edward Schultz who did the 2017 film It Comes at Night, which was one of the first horror films we ever talked about on Cinemaholics. Uh, Brandon, are you a fan of It Comes at Night? You know what? I, I'm not a huge horror fan, fan so I got to put that out first. But I noticed several things in It Comes at Night from a direction and filmmaking standpoint. I was like, wow, that's that's pretty unique. That's something special. And so when I got the opportunity to go see Waves, I'm like, wait, who made this movie? I'm like, oh, wait, I, that was that horror movie that stood out to me because I finally actually liked a scary movie. So I was really glad to see him kind of follow up that that first hit with something even more substantive. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to think of It Comes at Night as a horror movie. I remember walking into that thinking it would be scary and more than it really ended up just being creepy and melodramatic and uh, atmospheric, which I like those aspects of It Comes at Night. Ultimately, a film that kind of left me wanting, but I'm still excited about Waves because I, I do think this guy is very talented. And I'm also really interested in this cast, which, funny enough, uh, the film we'll be talking about after this shares somebody from the cast, and that's, of course, Lucas Hedges. Uh, but the main, I think the main stars here include Kevin Kelvin Harrison Jr., Sterling K. Brown. We also have Taylor Russell, Alexa Demi, Renee L. Goldsberry, a fantastic cast. This movie came out at the Telluride Film Festival just this past August, and it's now in limited release. So we're talking about it when a lot of you aren't quite able to see it yet unless you live i believe in new york and la but this is an a24 film and i guess i guess that's got to tell us enough that uh <laughs> this might be worth seeking out so 
Let's talk about waves. Um, honestly, I don't know too much about the plot here, Brandon. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you, uh, without giving too much away, without any uh, big spoilers or anything like that. Uh, how would how would you sell this movie to somebody kind of walking down the street, somebody who they they just they just don't go to the movies like they used to. Maybe they watch most of the movies on Netflix. How do you get somebody to go see this one in the theater? <laughs> well, of course, you know, you got to start off with a a plot description. I would say Waves is the exploration of the emotional journey that a suburban African American family uh, from Miami takes as they navigate love, forgiveness, uh, coming together, all in the wake of a a very very gripping tragedy. And the reason why you would go see something like, like that, that is obviously very heavy and emotional sounding, is that it is vibrant and kinetic and energetic visually and from a kind of visceral perspective. It shares a lot in common with euphoria in the sense that it is this very imaginative, creative, hypnotic type of film and the experience is very tense. It, the direction from Trey Edward Schultz really keeps you engaged and very much suspenseful without this being you know, some type of murder mystery or anything like that. Uh, another reason to go see it is it features three phenomenal performances from Kelvin Harrison Jr., who's having a fantastic year, Sterling K. Brown, who's just consistently good in everything he is, and Taylor Russell, which is a name not everybody may know. Uh, you probably best recognize her from her role in Netflix's Lost in Space, but she carries a significant chunk of the movie and is a real breakout moment for her. And this is just... It's, it's hard to explain. It is relentless in its quest to drain your tear ducts and twist your insides. And despite what I would say is a cuttable runtime, it does go very long, it rarely feels exhaustive or exploitive because there's just some stunning performances and the music of its imagery will be extremely moving to anyone who has a heart and soul. My goodness, I, I just saw the runtime for the first time. <laughs> now that you mentioned that, 135 minutes is is definitely a bit long. We've got a few movies like this, like Marriage Story recently, that go way past the two-hour mark. That's interesting. And you also mentioned Taylor Russell, who I really enjoyed her performance in Escape Room. Uh, some people, I think, probably saw that, judging from the box office. So, <laughs> yeah, it's great to see her popping up a bit. Uh, you also mentioned Euphoria. The uh, HBO show. I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners have clued into that show quite yet. I saw one episode. Are you a fan? I have mixed feelings about Euphoria. I think what it's trying to do is extremely ambitious and admirable. And I think the way it delivers it is obviously extremely engaging and creative. Does it fully coalesce? I, I, I'm not sure about that. I'm willing to give it the, the chance uh -huh. for the second season, which has been ordered. So that's saying something. Interesting. Okay, so good good news for me because uh, I definitely am always interested in getting back into shows that I I never quite finished up. Uh, you also, of course, mentioned Calvin Harrison Jr., who has really been on my radar for quite a while. He's in one of my favorite films of the year, and that's Loose. Uh, Loose is, uh, of course, the film where he stars alongside Octavia Spencer and is a troubled high school teen. And I, I'm so curious about this performance in particular. He's going up toe-to-to -to -toe with Sterling K. Brown, one of the greats. Uh, how do you think he does? How do you think he holds up in this role? Kelvin Harrison Jr. in this movie is just heart-shattering. And I mean that truly, not as a superlative or uh, just fancy language trying to pump this movie up. I, I mean, you feel this kid's pain deep inside you. And you mentioned Sterling K. Brown. I, I got to 
had the opportunity to interview him for Waves, and, and he said working with Kelvin was a, a really, really special experience because not only did he remind him of Sterling when he was younger and just starting out, but he said the kid is just wise beyond his years, and he thinks that really comes across in in the film. And, and I agree because you wouldn't expect someone so young to have such depths of emotion and ability to portray that in different ways. All right. Well, you mentioned your interview with Sterling K. Brown. We got to get to that. Uh, so you were able to talk to him. And it's always fun when you get to talk to somebody from the film and you actually like the film. <laughs> so that helps. It helps the whole interview. It really does. So uh, so what was that conversation like? I'm really curious about how Sterling K. Brown would describe a movie like this. Uh, he really doesn't do things quite like this, I want to say, which unless people want to point to something like This Is Us. But uh, this this is a unique role for him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to know who he plays in this because obviously everyone probably knows him best as Randall on NBC's The Good, the good uh, This Is Us, excuse me, where he's yeah. this lovable, goofy, endearing father. And here he is, again, a devoted patriarch, but he's also, while well-intentioned, very domineering and has extremely high expectations, especially for Kelvin's character. And that can be difficult at times for his kids to kind of endure under and his character goes through an absolute emotional journey throughout this film and and he he's someone who wants to protect his children from kind of the ills of society but he realizes that making decisions from a place of fear can lead to the situation manifesting itself into what we dread most and so he does learn about himself and about himself as a father and kind of what his family might need throughout this film, despite not being the lead role. And, and he's very excellent in it. And he, he said at first he wasn't sure if he wanted to do the project, if he was able to, because he was filming it on weekends after filming uh, This Is Us all week. And he told me what really sold him is that Trey sent him the script and he read it on the computer and there was music cues that are scored into the script. So you can hit a button and listen to music and read at the same time. And that at different points, there will be these big, bold fonts that he would use with different colors, like the words of love or beauty or something like that highlighted and, and kind of changed and in different fonts. So he said you could understand from the page that there was this whole soundscape and sort of visual palette for the movie that you do get when you see it on screen. And he had said, I had never gotten a pitch like that. Nobody's ever delivered a script like that to me. And it was, so it was an immediately attractive option. Yeah. I, we have to, of course, look at Sterling K Brown kind of macro here. And cause it is fascinating to see how his film career is going at this point. He's of course, he's a, as we've kind of made clear, this guy's been all over TV for a long, long time, as long as I've been watching TV, honestly, uh, as an adult. And, you know, things like you, I think you almost mentioned The Good Wife because he, of course, was on that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and lots of other great shows. I think uh, he was on People versus O.J. Simpson, for example. But film wise, that's interesting because I, I think you could forgive people for assuming that with Waves, he was the lead. And, you know, that the trailer does sort of position him as some sort of primary character. It sounds more like he is a not a secondary character, I want to say, but definitely somebody who uh, is more imposing than anything else. And I want to point people, of course, to his next film. He is going to be, well, I think, one of the lead roles in the rhythm section, the Blake Lively, Jude Law, Max Casella plane crash film uh, that comes out next year. And uh, other than, I mean, he's been having a great past couple of years, right? Uh, Hotel Artemis, Black Panther, Predator, of course. Uh, it was interesting to see him pop up in that. 
And I think he voices a character in Frozen 2, funny enough, which he is does. about to come out. Okay, there you go. So so, so what do you think about uh, a Brown's uh, filmmaking career? Do you think this is a good stepping stone for him? Do you think this is going to launch even more uh, really, hopefully, terrific films? Yeah, there's no doubt that he's on on an ascendancy right now, really, really enjoyable upward trajectory that we as fans get to uh, witness because this man has not really turned in a bad performance yet. Everything he's in, he's always been entertaining. And here in Waves, it's quite impressive because the father, while well-intentioned, like I said, there's a there's a bit of trouble there. He's not an evil man, but the movie does such a good job of conveying this undercurrent of tension between him and the rest of the family. And he does an amazing job of really portraying that, that, you know, just a little bit of sinisterness right under the surface. And so he does a, a very compelling job. And A24 is going to submit him for a Best Supporting Actor uh, Oscar consideration. And I think while A24 isn't necessarily going to have a, you know, huge blockbuster hit on their hands with Waves, because that's not the type of business they dabble in, people who do see Waves will see Sterling K. Brown and once again add yet another impressive performance to his resume. And he will continue to impress critics and audiences alike and continue to accumulate good roles. So I have to, of course, talk to you about A24 and what they have in mind for Oscars this year. That is an interesting conversation. But one of the last things I want to tie back into Waves real quick is, is Trey Edward Schultz as a director. This is his third film. We mentioned it comes at night, but he also directed Krisha. And as someone who hasn't seen Waves, what I'm at least sort of observing myself is that these are films about family. They're films about dysfunctional parental structures. And they're films about children sort of grappling with, uh, I know Christian was about his real life aunt. It's based on a short film that he also directed. And that was as personal as it can get. And I think that he's sort of carried that into his next two films. Uh, but what do you see in Trey Edward Schultz beyond that sort of dynamic? I, obviously, I don't think he's going to be making films about parents who disappoint their kids <laughs> the rest of his life <laughs> or for every single film he does. Uh, but yeah, what, what was your take? Do you think that really does carry over in waves that connective tissue? Yeah, absolutely. You know, watching it, you're reminded that nobody in life, not even those meant to shepherd you through it, really know what they're doing. Some people just make luckier guesses. And that's a point that he hammers home repeatedly. And it's it connects with you because despite the fact that we put our faith in these pillars and in these in institutions, whether it be family, community, parents, there will always be flaws. There will always be drawbacks. There will always be stumbles. And I do like that he portrays that human element of it. And I think Waves is also a, a step forward in terms of the actual technical filmmaking abilities that he has at his disposal, because this is unlike his other two movies visually and from a kind of cinematography and score point of view. He, he is very holistic and he paints a, a full palette here. And again, while I do think uh, you could probably shave 25 minutes off this movie, I, I, you know, I have that big complaint and yet it remains in my top five on the year, which I think is a testament to how unbelievably powerful and creative the first act and a half are. Yes, we should not understate uh, how many films you have seen this year. So top five is absolutely something that should perk your ears up. And I, I do want to, of course, I've got to shout out Trey Edward Schultz as a fellow millennial. Uh, he's just a little bit older than I am, a couple years older. And it's just fantastic to see such a young filmmaker 
just having a stamp like this so early in his life and um, absolutely making waves himself. Now, of course, we got to uh, before we get into the next film, let's let's sort of pause and and put our spotlight on A24 real quick. This is this is A24, as you mentioned, and they, they've had an interesting year. They've made some of my favorite films of the year. They include The Farewell, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And they, they've done a lot of interesting television. They, they've been involved with Euphoria, actually. And, you know, now that, now that I think about it. And I'm curious, what do, you, what do you think of A24's Oscar chances? Do you think they have a strategy in place now? It sounds like you're already kind of looking at who they're tapping for Best Supporting Actor. I happen to think that Best Supporting Actress for The Farewell is something that must be going on in their heads. But they have a lot of films to look at this year. Um, I'm surprised that the Kill Team hasn't gotten as much uh, uh, play from them. I guess they're not quite as happy with that. But then there also is The Lighthouse, uh, which has just come out. And we talked about it for quite a while, Midsummer, The Souvenir. I, there's a lot going on here, but what do you think? Uh, what, what, are, what are some of these films' chances, do you think? It's interesting because A24 was founded just seven years ago, and they already have garnered 25 Academy Award nominations. I mean, that is extremely impressive, especially when you remember that they've never distributed a film that has grossed more than 50 million in the United States. It's unprecedented. And, right, exactly. And I, But I do think the reason that they are able to accomplish that is because A24, and I mean this as a compliment, I do not mean this as a criticism, but they are less a movie studio and more of a marketing department. Uh, from everything I've ever been been told from, from people involved with the studio is that they are very hands-off in terms of the filmmaking process. They trust the talent to create uh, their vision and they give them free reign to do so. And that their main focus is marketing the film and garnering the type of awards attention for worthy entries. Uh, and they're, no one's really doing that better than them at the moment. And in terms of this year's upcoming Oscars, I think their best chances are absolutely the farewell in waves. The farewell, you're probably looking at uh, maybe not probably, but the best chance you got a best supporting, you've potentially got a best actress for Aquafina, and you potentially have a best director for Lulu Wang. Similar to Waves, you're, they're all circling, you know, a, a best supporting for S Sterling K. Brown and a best director for Trey Edward Schultz. Those are probably the more mainstream, digestible films that have the best shot at breaking through this year. So you don't think in Fabric and Uncut Gems, which are their next two, which have been getting great reads from critics, uh, you don't think those ones are going to quite land with the Academy, you think? I screened uh, Uncut Gems the other day, and I, I enjoyed it overall, although I do think, of course, there are some drawbacks and some flaws. But I don't. Th their best shot there was Adam Sandler and Best uh, Actor. And while he's incredible in the movie and carries the entire picture— I don't necessarily think he might break through in what is a very, very competitive field this year. And we should have mentioned, and Fabric's more of a horror film, so uh, that's a big reason why uh, we'd, we're definitely doubting it's going to get much play beyond critics liking it, uh, because I have good, heard good things so far. But yes, I've, I've heard amazing things about Uncut Shams. I've heard it's some people's favorite films of the year. But uh, based on what I've read and observed about that film and sort of its filmmaking style, I can sort of see your point there. But it is still a packed year for them. They have films like The Death of Dick Long. They have films like Midsummer, and I guess High Life and Gloria Bell. But yeah, films like those and of course Climax, which is I think at this point Will Ashton's favorite film of 2019 or one of them. 
I, I don't know. I, I'm seeing a lot of like really unique indie niche films and it kind of ties into something interesting I think you were saying before, which is that and I don't think A24 gets credit for this enough, but they really are a, they are really effective in their branding. It's something that we, we don't really get to because when it comes to branding themselves to the general public, I don't think they've quite permeated mainstream culture or have really even come close to that. They, they've sort of permeated the film critic circles and they've, they've sort of made a name for themselves as like critics will watch their films really without any sort of it's hard. to It's not hard to persuade us um, to be interested in a film like Waves, for example, and and even something like that, that they're producing and helping distribute like The Elephant Queen. Uh, people will see that A24 logo and they're in. Um, but not that everything they do is up to the same quality, but w- what can you speak to that? Why do you think that branding is so effective on us at least? And do you think it's going to start making more of an impact on mainstream audiences who see that logo? And do you think they're going to start understanding like, okay, this is a, this is, these are the films that I watch for, for real cinema. Uh, it's kind of a shorthand for that sort of experience. Well, to this point, they have certainly tried to be the HBO of the independent film market in that they produce carefully curated, high-quality products. Of course, not every movie is going to be a winner, but for the most part, like you said, in kind of the film Twitter circles, they know A24, they know a good chance this is going to be a quality film. Going forward, I I actually don't know if it's going to break through in the way you meant. I think you're going to see in the nearish future – a soft pivot from A24 as they try to maybe move a little bit more into the mid-budget mainstream field. I think they do want some of that more commercial, more uh, you know, broad appeal type of product. And I think they're going to cater a little bit less toward that film Twitter circle moving forward while still trying to maintain the you know bevy of prestige pictures that they do produce every year. I think that's a fair point, especially when you look at what they have coming up soon uh they've got a new david lowry film coming up they have bodies 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 uh colin farrell i think is going to be in one of the next films and souvenir part two which i think the souvenir perfectly encapsulates your point there uh the film twitter circles especially because that is a film that i i I personally didn't love the souvenir i i enjoyed it though and i i think that's the same thing with all of these films is that i can watch any of them and be glad i saw them even if i don't absolutely love them they're they're that interesting um there's a movie that they released in july called share that i saw at sundance it's on hbo now and i i recommend it but it's not it's not gonna blow your mind it's like a b b minus kind of film but it is just so interesting in its filmmaking even if it doesn't wash you over uh you're still gonna get something out of it and and then of course i mean only a24 could release something like the death of dick long i mean uh and i love that the daniels are or daniel shiner in this case was able to find them and be able to do this but yeah, lots of films on their docket. Uh, A24 is looking pretty interesting this year. They made my favorite film of last year, Eighth Grade. They've made two of my favorite films of this year. The la- again, The Last Black Man in San Francisco and uh, Loose and uh, High Life and The Farewell. Those are all some like, films I'm never going to forget. And of course, Midsummer, I, I absolutely love. But uh, was Waves your favorite A24 film this year, Brandon? Or is there another one we've mentioned? Waves was absolutely my favorite this year. My favorite overall still has to be Moonlight, which I think personally is one of the best films of this decade. That's right. Moonlight actually happens to be our number one film on the Young Folks Top 50 of the decade. I actually haven't plugged that yet on the Cinemaholics, but yes, if you go to the youngfolks.com, uh, I got to contribute three essays to that list. Top 50 films 
of the decade. Moonlight is number one, spoiler alert. Um, so that list is uh, already revealed to you somewhat. But uh, I three of the films I got to re- contribute essays for include Inside Out, Call Me By Your Name, and The Master. And uh, I, I do kind of want to close out on this note for A24 in, in general. But I, I have to say this year, I'm really hoping something overcomes it i won't i won't spoil it's a film that i'm about to see and i'm hoping it becomes my favorite film of the year but we'll get to that on another day for now let's get into the other film we wanted to discuss this week and that is honey boy and this is an interesting one because brandon i know you've been championing a lot of indie films this weekend we also have charlie's angels and ford versus ferrari and quite a other things but I, I know that you were you were championing on Twitter like, hey, Waves, Honey Boy, and a few others. Uh, but this one I haven't seen since January. So it, it is always that fun test of like, how does a film sort of play a year later? I know you have to do this quite a lot when you see things at festivals and, and when you screen things. But uh, for Honey Boy, uh, this is directed by Alma Harrell. This is her first, uh, first feature film that isn't a documentary. I forget what the uh, documentary was that she did before this, but it was quite a, it was quite a while back. I think it was like in 2011, but this film is a personal, personal, almost sort of like not autobiographical, but close to it. Retelling of Shia LaBeouf's life as a child in the nineties when he was working on even Stevens. And when he eventually was an action star, all the transformers in the two thousands and sort of explaining to us as a culture that is probably routinely misunderstood Shia LaBeouf in general, where he comes from and why, why he had this anger that we sort of saw in, in reality later on. I don't know if this is the kind of film that makes a ton of sense unless you grew up with Shia LaBeouf and you understand parts of his story, but uh, it is a very effective film because it actually details a lot of those emotions through again another dysfunctional parental relationship so it's cut this is a great double feature is what i'm trying to say waves and honey boy so <laughs> so shia labeouf actually plays his father and his father who was abusive emotionally and physically to him when he was a child actor in this film played by noah jupe you might remember from a quiet place and then it bounces back and forth in time between him as played by noah jupe in 1995 i believe and then him is portrayed by Lucas Hedges and Lucas Hedges kind of shows him a little bit more grown up and sort of wandering in, in the world and trying to figure out how to process what happened to him and how to do that as an actor. Brandon, wh- what do you think of Honey Boy? Do you think I've really summed it up or there's something else about this film you think is kind of a unique hook into it that people should know about? Yeah, I think one thing that people don't know about is that Shia LaBeouf actually wrote the script when he was in court mandated rehab and That's therapy. Right. Yeah. And it yeah, it began as kind of just an exercise for him to get in touch with his own pain and and some of the reasons why he he found himself in these negative legal situations as a as a young adult and it morphed into this very touching and ca- cathartic and extremely honest self-assessment of both himself and his life. And uh I think I, when I reacted to it on Twitter, my main takeaway was that this movie was for anyone who has ever felt like they needed to wear a mask in life, whether to hide from something or seek something out. And regardless of your background, you know whether you had a, a turbulent childhood or just were a normal kid growing up with all of the normal struggles that go into that, you can find something that emotionally anchors you in this picture. And I, I'm just so blown away by not only 
Shia LaBeouf's extreme honesty. I mean, this is a film without ego, which you would not expect from basically a self-autobiography. And I'm really impressed with Alma Harrell's direction in this as her first feature film. I got the opportunity to interview her as well. And the insights she provided really kind of illuminate some of the hidden meanings in the film. So so what was that like? Because she's still a bit of a mystery to me. I'm very interested in what she has coming down the road. But in terms of these masks that you're talking about and a lot of the aesthetics that come into the play in this film, I think some people might see the trailer and be a little confused. of like, why is there a chicken right there? And what's the deal with the clowns? We don't have to explain, of course, what all these things mean. But uh, did you did you have a conversation with her about those sort of things and how she sort of settled on the visual uh, storytelling she decided to go with here? Yeah, so because this was Shia LaBeouf reflecting on his own life, she said the only way to bring truth to it was to portray it as it is. And what it is is a memory. It shares that same hypnotic, dreamy quality that's blurred ever so slightly out of focus by a lifetime of recollections. And like most core memories you mentioned inside out, it that come to define a person, this is dotted by pain and uplifted by joy. And she really wanted to convey this sense of of looking back on one's life. And some things are a bit surreal because memory is never perfect. It's never a documentary, which is what her background is. It is more so a kind of confluence of factors all combining to recreate something crucial in your life. So that is why she tried to opt for that visual language that's a bit non-conventional. One of the things that fascinates me about this film in particular is the fact that, again, it's been almost a year since I saw this. And, you know, just talking about it now, I can really just go right back to my own memory of watching this and experiencing it for the first time. And such scenes just really stick out to me. I mean, it is such a solid script and I'm, you know, I'm blown away that, that this is a, apparently his his first script that he's brought to film. I think he has worked on scripts before, but uh, in this way, I don't, I think this might be a first for LaBeouf. And I'm remembering so much of that, that pain, that anguish, that uncertainty on Noah Jupe's face and some of the, some of the dramatic flourishes and some of the cinematic cinematic uh or i should say camera techniques that harrell does here there's a fa- just fantastic montage that sums up lucas hedges kind of like day in the life that kind of like puts you through the blur and the just i said anger before but in this case it's more of like a pot boil where you just can feel he's ready to explode at any second and this is early on in the film it really is just sort of like taking us on a quick slide reel of who this guy is just for us to pull back on the reins and go all the way back and and show him as a child actor. And as somebody who, you know, to be totally honest, I, I can't relate directly with his experience. I've, I've never been a child actor. Um, my father is a very different type of person, um, but I can empathize so easily with this guy who I feel like you and I have known for a long time as people who grew up in the 2000s and the 90s. And we we know this this actor, we've seen his movies all of these years. How, how does it feel for you? Because I'm just a little bit like, you know, still processing this reanalysis or this reevaluating of an actor who I'm not going to say I w- we knew, but somebody who I, I certainly did not understand before I saw this film. Yeah, you know, Honey Boy really externalizes the insidious cycle of trauma. And it employs that memory technique we discussed kind of shade in the texture of a man many assume that they know and to reveal his true self in such an honest and raw way is not only commendable but it makes for great art 
Uh, I think what stands out to me as perhaps the most striking line of the film is that Lucas Hedges, Hedges, excuse me, Lucas Hedges' version of the character says, the only thing my father ever gave me of any value was pain. And I mean, that just cuts to the core. That is unbelievably sad and powerful. And I think that's at the core of Honey Boy is pain has made him who he is. And so in some instances, he is not he he doesn't regret everything that happens to him and he has reconciled with his father in real life but to grow up and to feel that way about your own upbringing is heartbreaking and to see that played out in a very unique and fresh way and brought to life by such great performances especially Noah Jupe who is just a, a revelation as a young actor on the rise it was a really special experience in my opinion what did you think about some of the other performances here? Uh, for me, I'm having a hard time really remembering them as much as I like these actors. I remember FK Twigs quite a bit, but Micah Monroe's also in this, Natasha Leone, Martin Starr. Uh, what do you think of this ensemble? I know that it's not really the focus on them. They kind of come and go. But yeah, do, do you think that the the cast works overall or do you really just think, you know, what? it's just it's Lucas Hedges, it's Noah Drew, it's Shia LaBeouf? Those three clearly carry the momentum. And of course, there's always a, a little bit something missing when they're not at the focus. But the ensemble does work. There's just an especially great scene between Lucas Hedges and Martin Starr, who is his therapist in the court-mandated rehab, where they're just verbally sparring and having this kind of tit-for-tat but at the same time, they're also digging at something very emotionally honest. And you can see this kind of performative identity where both of those get blurred together, where, you know, the character is trying to be defensive and yet also revealing at the same time. And Martin Starr is a bit of a blank slate. We all know him probably best for for his comedic turns. But here, his kind of affable everyman quality really works as a soundboard to the emotional truth that's going on. So I do think this was this well cast and just well put together scene by scene, character by character, line by line. Yeah, that that Martin Starr casting is so surprising, but it, it works. It really does. Funny enough, uh, I, I want to point special attention to also something kind of unique about this film. And, you know, I'm not going to say it's a it's a film like I, I'm ready to praise it. I'm ready to tell people to watch it. It's it's in limited release right now. It's going to be on Amazon soon. If you're able to catch it uh, at your local theater, your art house cinema, wherever you can find it, please do. I think that it's it's something that is, is going to have a positive impact on a lot of people. But one thing that I just want to shout out that is unique about this film in yet another way is just just like the abundance of talented female filmmakers uh, behind here. We talked about Alma uh, Harrell, of course, and uh, there's also Alex Summers who does the music. Um, she's fantastic. She's a Maryland native. And then we, of course, have the cinematography here from Natasha Brer, uh, who's an Argentinian cinematographer. And yeah, if you just go through this film, uh, it just it feels like it, it has to be sort of intentional where despite this being such a personal story about a boy who becomes a troubled man <laughs> through conduit of his older self playing his own father. Uh, the fact that it works so well when you have women shooting these scenes and women identifying with him and proving how easily they can they can have that that empathy with a character like this. I, I just I, I love it. I, I love when that, that sort of thing comes together in a sort of way. And then Daniela Tappen Lundberg is one of the producers forgot to mention. So I'm uh, not sure if that stuck out to you at all or if it's incidental or what, but I was happy to see it. Yeah, I asked her in, in my Observer interview, I said, you know, this is very much Shia's story. This is his life. 
So how do you come in as director and take over as needed to bring the, the picture to life? And she said, you know, it wasn't so much that I was taking over. It was that I have, you know, shared experiences in terms of turbulent childhood. And I come from a place of empathy. So even though it is Shia's story, we can all relate to feeling small at one time or another. And my intention wasn't necessarily to co-opt the story, even though, of course, you know, a director needs to breathe life into this vision. But it was simply to relay the emotions that were on the page. So I think coming from that background, and especially as a documentarian, a non-conventional documentarian who tries to find empathy despite the purpose of documentaries being removed, she had a very unique perspective coming to this. And it's funny you mentioned the cinematographer. She, uh, Alma Harrell has said in other interviews that there was concerns from the cinematographer and the rest of the crew that she wasn't getting enough coverage shots or when she was shooting scenes multiple times, she didn't get the necessary uh, background that she needed. And she said, no, 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 you guys don't understand. Coming from my documentary background, I am able to splice this together in a way that will always work despite doing it in one or two takes. And so it's funny that they had that trust in each other, even though, of course, there were disagreements and, you know, a, a unique, different uh, perspective on filmmaking. That's interesting, especially because they filmed in L.A. It can be kind of hard if you're shooting something that happened in the 90s and you're trying to like splice together footage that doesn't you have you don't have to toss away because maybe something gets into the shot that sort of gives away or is distracts from the time period we're supposed to be. And that, that's fascinating. And yeah, I. I also I have to praise this film for being just that crisp, clean 93 minutes. Not too long, not too short. Uh, I think it's a perfect length. And so I mentioned before, yeah, this was a Sundance film and Amazon scooped this one up. I think it had a three point five million dollar budget. They bought it for five million. Slight little profit there for this for these productions. I think it's automatic and stay gold who did the film. And I'm looking sort of the box office right now. It, again, limited release, so grain of salt, but $374,000. Uh, it doesn't need to make a ton of money here to be successful, considering the fact that I don't, think I don't think they spent millions and millions on the marketing. And I also don't think they care that much about the the uh, box office. I think this is more of like a streaming sort of thing where they're going to get lots of people interested over time to find this film. But what do you think? Do you think this will have play at the box office? Or do you think this is going to be, if not like a cult hit, something that people are going to discover uh, more and more as they realize, oh, I haven't seen that. That's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, it's hard to tell because we've seen this type of scenario before. Right now, Honey Boy is putting up phenomenal per screen averages, which often get people excited about a platform release, which means you generate over time you release the theater, uh, the movie in more and more theaters. Now, the same thing happened for Late Night, which was putting up killer numbers in per theater averages. But as soon as it went a little bit wider, it unfortunately failed to generate the type of business that they were hoping for. Now, that is a far more commercial and digestible film than Honey Boy, which is about trauma and, and grief and PTSD. Yeah, not, not the feel-good film of the year, for sure. Exactly. So I don't know if necessarily... This is going to do big business in wider release. I do think that Amazon is pretty capable of platforming a release effectively. Uh, I do think it will do solid business. But again, this is more so a prestige play that will get interested, will get more interest on streaming and potentially generate some awards attention. All right. So that means it's time to get into our favorite part, and that is the Oscar talk. And that's for Amazon Studios. So 
they, they have lots of films that they've come out with this year. I think it's been a much weaker year for them than maybe last year and the year before, I want to say. I don't know if you would agree. I I do think this film has great Oscar chances compared to some of the other ones on our list. I think The Report, another Sundance film that I, one of my, another one of my favorite films of the year. The, the Report's in my top 10. Honey Boy is in maybe my top 25, top 30 of the year. As much as I like it, there's just that many great films. Anybody who tells you this has been a bad year for film, I just think is being silly. Uh, there's great stuff. You just have to <laughs> hunt down for it a little bit this year. Uh, they also have the Aeronauts coming out soon. But yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at their stuff, and as much as I like some of these films, like Britney Runs a Marathon, I I don't know. What do, what do you think? Do you think this is uh Do you think this is going to be one of the years where they just don't hit the Oscars uh, very well? I think Honey Boy has an outside shot at Best Director from Alma Harrell, though that would take a a surprising turn of events. It's got an outside shot at Best Supporting for Shia LaBeouf, but you know overall. And I don't mean this as a knock against Amazon that puts out a lot of great content. I think cinematically, it's been a step down ever since that 2017 year with Manchester by the Say. I was going to say that was, that was a big year for them. Uh, and Patterson came out around that time. The yeah. Handmaiden. They had so much momentum. I think within about 10 months, they had Manchester and the Big Sick with, within 10 months of each other or something like that. And that was a nice little stretch run. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So Big Sick was a 2017 film. Manchester by the Sea had just done pretty well at the Oscars right before that. Casey Affleck, of course, took the Oscar for Best Actor. Uh, but then, yeah, you're, you're, now that I'm thinking about it, th- that next year was a little bit more hit or miss. They did have Cold War. Cold War was a big success for them uh, in terms of getting that Best Foreign Film. Now it's Best International uh, Film at this point. Um, but yeah, some of their other films just did not quite. You had films like Wonderstruck and Brad Status. It, it, it just didn't quite connect with people. Uh, I know that uh, you were never really here, though. One of my favorite films of last year, one of the best films of the decade, in my opinion. And then that instantly got kind of downplayed by, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. The Gus Van Sant film we all thought was going to be much better than it was. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Last Flag Flying, which I, I just, I, it, it reminds me a bit of Honey Boy, where this personal story um, from a filmmaker that people respect. Uh, not that Alma Harrell is Richard Linklater, but you know what I mean? It's like, it looks like a film that's just going to be kind of quiet and sort of sneak its way past the Oscar conversation and not really uh, get recognized. But what about the report? The report is probably their best chance, in my opinion, for getting best actor for Adam Driver, best supporting for Annette Bening, um, maybe best original screenplay, maybe best director for Scott Burns. What do you think? I think it's best shot is absolutely Annette Bening. I think Driver's camp deservedly so is putting all of their muscle behind marriage story for his best right. actor nomination. Yeah. So I, I don't think he's going to be pushed hard in that category. I mean, Amazon of course can do what they want, but I, I think even the voting block will agree that marriage story is the one to back and just backing up for one second. It's funny when you said you were mentioning all of these kind of 2016, 2017, 2018 movies, there's a reason we were saying these haven't broken through at the Oscars. They also haven't broken through at the box office and the failure of, of some of these films, has really made Amazon rethink its cinematic strategy, which is why studio head Jennifer Salke is kind of pulling back on their theatrical releases. They're doing more Netflix releases where it's just a few weeks in exclusive theaters before moving online. And they've also decided to stop reporting box office numbers for certain films, starting with the report, all because of the reasons we've been talking about. So it's a very interesting time of transition for Amazon. It's sad to see because they came out with some great stuff. I I thought Guava Island was very good. And Suspiria was such a great film from last year. And yeah, I I, I can't say that they're going to have a winner probably in Seaberg. 
Uh, judging what we heard about that film coming out of Venice, that that was another film I think they had high hopes for. That was, of course, with Kristen Stewart and uh, Margaret Qualley coming right off of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Anthony Mackie, Vince Vaughn. I mean, it, it's so sad uh, <laughs> considering uh, that film is already going to have been met with a thud. It hasn't even hit some sort of release. So I guess I guess Amazon has a kind of a weird year ahead and Netflix has really made a comeback. I, I remember the reporting when you and I were, were looking at 2016. I remember those days uh, when we were uh, collectively as a film reporting group, we're like, man, you know, Amazon Prime is just cleaning Netflix's clock when it comes to these <laughs> Oscar films. Man, what are they going to do uh, 2017, 2018? And here we are in 2019 where we have films like Marriage Story and, you know, uh, we have, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Um, Netflix could very potentially have three Best Picture nominees this year in Marriage Story, The Irishman, Irishman and the Two Popes. Two Popes, which I see this week, and I'm I'm ready to see what the hype is about with Two Popes. I've I've heard I, so I saw Irishman in Marriage Story, and I couldn't agree with you more. But what about Two Popes? Have you seen that one yet? I am screening it in about a week, so we we can re- go back Perfect. on the show and talk all Two Popes. <laughs> we'll see. We'll have to reconvene with the uh, the Two Pod. I don't know. That doesn't really quite work. But yes, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on Cinemaholics and talking about some indie films. It's always a blast to have you on. We're gonna have to get you back on again, maybe to talk uh, talk about these Oscars, because I just uh, I'm still perplexed. <laughs> and uh, uh, you, you make it you made it you make this really complicated stuff seem easy. So we appreciate that. Uh, can't wait to have you back on again. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, man. 